Our sermon this morning is on the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So turn there in your Bibles if you, if you have them. The story of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector is one of Jesus' parables um, intended to illustrate the heart of God, intended to, to communicate spiritual truths about Uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, what it means to be saved, how we as sinners can be saved and can be declared righteous and welcomed into the presence of a holy God, how how undeserving sinners can receive uh, a salvation that they do not deserve. So that's kind of be where we're where we're headed and kind of what we're talking about this this morning we got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump right in. I'm just gonna jump right in and, and read through Luke 18 verses 9 through 14, and then we're gonna take some time to consider it and to you know um, consider what it means and kind of how we can apply it to to our lives. So let's start in verse nine. It says, "He Jesus, he also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt." The two men, went, or two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like extortioners or unjust or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but rather beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would give us grace as we gather together around your word, as we listen to it and meditate on it and and, uh, seek to apply it and, and obey it. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, give us grace, uh, help us to hear you and obey you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 9, Jesus told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we see kind of right out of the gate this kind of Lucan narrative, Lucan commentary on what's happening. Uh, Luke is telling us who Jesus is talking to and kind of who he is aiming this parable at. He's aiming it at people who trust in themselves, trust that they are righteous, and treat others with contempt contempt, which as we're going to see, I mean, there's a Pharisee in the story, but this is kind of a, a like a, a classic definition or description of the, the Pharisees. So we can assume that there are Pharisees kind of gathered around in the crowd there, and that's who Jesus is talking to. We see, we see the Pharisees mentioned in almost every chapter of Luke, every chapter since, you know, as far back as Luke 10 or 11, we just see, you know, Jesus's 
eating with Pharisees or, or invited to Pharisees' homes or he's, you know, talking to Pharisees or the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and muttering about how Jesus, you know, this man uh, receives sinners and eats with them or, or Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for loving money or he's talking to the Pharisees, like whatever, like the, uh, the Pharisees are constantly popping up and being mentioned over and over in the Gospel of, of Luke. And the Pharisees are... I mean, even the word Pharisee kind of has like some, some you know, modern day connotations to it. Someone who's obsessed with rules, someone who is a goody two-shoes, someone who is self-righteous and always kind of judging others and pointing out, you know, how they're not as, as good. I mean, the Pharisees are like, they're like everyone's favorite punching bag, the people that we all love to hate. That's the, that's the Pharisees. Um, but the, the Pharisees, I mean, it's, it's worth kind of, understanding a little more about who they are and how they came to be and kind of um, what, their, what the nature of their little, uh, you know, group, uh, uh, their little clique was, right? Um, the Pharisees admittedly are uh, often guilty of or even the embodiment of almost the main sin that we see confronted in the New Testament over and over and over, which is self-righteousness and pride and, and you know, self trusting in one's self that's that's like a big uh, recurring theme in the new testament one of the worst things that that you can can do but if you look at the old testament um and and that sin is also confronted in the old testament the sin of pride self-righteousness uh legalism these kinds of things uh but it's more pronounced in the new testament the sin that is more pronounced in the old testament and that is kind of confronted and and rebuked quite a bit is that of uh, idolatry of, of worshiping other gods, conforming to the idolatrous nations around Israel, and instead of remaining faithful to the one true God, uh, you know, worshiping the gods of everyone else around, right? God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a, into a great nation, but I want you to be faithful to me. I want you to worship me. I will be your God. I want your people to be my, my people, right? Egypt, right? I'll, I'll, I'll bring you out. I'll, I'll redeem you out of, out of slavery in Egypt and kind of bring you into the promised land. I want you to be my people. I will be your God. Worship me alone, right? Uh, when they come into the promised land, drive out the other nations out of, the, out of this land because they worship other gods and they are going to kind of pull you away from monogamous, faithful love and worship of me, your God, and start to, you know, uh, introduce you to polygamy, uh, to to you know, polytheism and, and worshiping all of these other uh, gods, right? The judges, First and Second Kings. I mean, if you read through First and Second Kings, that's what you see over and over: is that like this guy was a good king because he followed in the the footsteps of his of David, and he uh, removed uh, you know the the idols and Baal and Asherah poles, and the, he took down the high places that people used to worship other gods, or. This guy was a bad king because he didn't do that. He wasn't like David. He didn't worship God alone. He worshiped other gods, and he led his people into worshiping other gods. All throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the recurring message is you will feel a pull away from faithful monotheism, worshiping the one true God, and you will feel a pull to... Other nations, they'll want to make treaties with you. They'll want to give their daughters to you in marriage. They'll, they'll want you to offer sacrifices to their gods, uh, you know, all, and don't do it, right? Th- those gods aren't real or, or they're, they're demonic influences, so don't worship other gods. Worship the one true God. 
And Israel was, was all over the map on whether they would, you know, obey these commands or, or not. But kind of uh, in, along the way, right, between, uh, you know, but, but kind of in the intertestamental period, this, this group of Pharisees cropped up. And it was specifically to address Israel's failing to obey kind of that one central big recurring theme of worship God and don't worship idols. And so the Pharisees kind of came in and they tried to, to lead Israel out of idolatry and say, say you know, God, uh, you know, we, we uh, even if the culture wants us to worship other gods, even if there is, is a pull, we, we want to be a people who love God, love the Bible. They, st- they were like, you know, anti-compromise. We will not compromise. We will not worship other gods. We'll remain faithful to him. And it was, I mean, there was, it was this big kind of resistance movement against idolatry and against compromise. So the Pharisees started as, as, a, as a good, like a good and noble cause, right? See, rightly seeing this kind of slow drift, this slow creep that the nation of Israel was kind of falling into, falling away from faithfulness to God and follow, fall, falling into uh, worshiping other gods. And they said, we don't want to do that. And we're going to plant our flag here and protect the purity of the doctrine of the people of God, right? It's, uh, in a lot of ways, it's very similar to uh, fundamentalism in American Christianity in the 20th 20th century. Um, you know, the, the eight, 19th and 20th century, kind of 1800s into the 1900s was this big kind of rise of uh, theological liberalism and, and kind of uh, cultural modernism, especially in Europe. Um, you know, so a lot of these like philosophers and historians and academics were starting to engage with the Bible and engage with ancient uh, texts, but they were doing so on, on very secularized, very, uh, you know, uh, materialist terms. And so they would want to re... There's a thing called the, the quest for the historical Jesus. It's like a, a movement, a, n- a 19th and 20th century kind of academic movement where they basically were like, we want to read the Bible on its own terms and find out who the historical Jesus is, right? And But the, the assumptions behind this kind of quest for the historical Jesus was that like, you know, kind of supernatural, like the Bible... You know, we want to read the Bible, but we're going to dispense with the assumptions that the Bible is a supernatural work of God. So we're going to, you know, uh, you know, the the Bible is a is a product of these church fathers who kind of had these theological biases, and so we're going to do historical work to find out who Jesus really was and what Jesus really said. One of the one of the taglines in the quest for the historical Jesus was. We want to find out the, the Jesus of history as opposed to the Christ of faith, right? So the, the, the more that we kind of see who Jesus is through the lens of church fathers and kind of uh, people in the church power structure, we're not going to see the real Jesus. We want to see the historical Jesus. And so, you know, as you'd expect, they like wanted to read the New Testament, but like discard anything that talked about miracles or theological speak where Jesus says that he's God or the, the resurrection, the virgin birth, all of these kind of like supernatural elements to the New Testament, uh, the, the 19th and 20th century liberal, you know, theological movements wanted to throw all that stuff out and basically just be left with, you know, a very sparse kind of collection of like niceties about Jesus, that he was a nice guy who said things like, love your neighbor, love your enemies, 
you know, judge not lest you be judged. You know, there's kind of a very small skeleton of things that, that Jesus said, and they kind of took everything else in the New Testament and kind of left it on the, the cutting room floor. And that kind of creep, that kind of drift, similar to the Pharisees, gave rise to 20th century uh, American fundamentalism, where, you know, a, a group kind of says, no, we're not going to slide, we're not going to drift. Uh, there are certain fundamental, fundamentalists, there are certain fundamentals that are non-negotiable, and, and that, you know, they're worth fighting for, they're worth dying for, we're not going to compromise on them, and the, the five kind of fundamentals that the fundamentalist movement was started with was the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, like kind of the, the literal reading of Scripture, particularly with miracles and supernatural content, uh, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ's death on, on the cross. Right, those are like the five fundamentals of fundamentalism. And so similar to the Pharisees and, and uh, the fundamentalist movement, you know, you hear it and you're like, amen, praise God. We do want to be faithful to God. We do want to, to you know, worship God and we do want to, you know, not worship other gods. And we do want to hold true to these non-negotiable, essential fundamentals of the faith. But, you know, you hear the term fundamentalist now and, you know, you think of like, dogmatic, uh, combative, prideful, judgmental, you know, someone who's always wants to argue about some random, like really in the weeds point of theology, or someone who's like extremely beholden to man-made rules and traditions that aren't found anywhere in, in the Bible. I mean, not, not all fundamentalists are like that, but a lot of people like that identify as uh, as fundamentalists. So it starts one way, and then over decades or even centuries, it kind of drifts into something else. And that's the same as, as the Pharisees, right? They started by just saying, don't worship idols. We don't worship idols. We care about God, and we want to worship God. But over time, they just became, you know, the, they morphed. They kind of morphed from a group that was opposed to the main sin and the main thing that the Old Testament confronts, and they kind of morphed into a group that actually embodied and, and, and was, a, you know, was, was a manifestation of the main sin that the New Testament confronts, right? They, they started as being anti-idolatry, which is like the main sin the Old Testament confronts, and they kind of morphed into being self-righteous and, and prideful and judgmental, which are some of the main sins that the New Testament uh, confronts. And so... You know, so Jesus looks around at this crowd, likely comprised, you know, of, of, a, of a large number of Pharisees, and he sees that these people trust in themselves, he sees that these people trust in their righteousness, he sees that these people are, uh, you know, looking down on others and judging them and treating them with uh, contempt, Right, so the Pharisees believe that, that they believe that God would accept them, that God would approve of them, uh, based on something that was intrinsic to them. Right, I I am a good person. I believe in God. I follow the law. I am faithful to God's word. I uh, do not worship idols. I wash my hands the right way before I I you know uh, go to the ceremonial feast. I I I I me me me. Right, the Pharisees were, uh, you know, hopelessly, you know, kind of trusting in themselves, trusting in their righteousness and their moral accomplishments, their good works, 
And they were, they were awfully impressed by themselves. They, they, were, they were impressed by how good they were. They would look, their, look down their nose at like, I can't believe that that person you know, committed that sin. I would never do that. I'm so much better than them. I can't believe that that person has that compromised area of theology. My doctrine is better than theirs. I'm holier than them. Right? They're poor. I'm rich. That must be because God decided to bless me because God is impressed with me and how holy and how righteous I am. God is lucky to have me because I'm so great and I'm so much better than everyone else. That's kind of how, that's how the Pharisees uh, saw the world. That's how they understood God. That's how they understood themselves and everyone else's is that God was indebted to them. God was impressed with them. God, uh, you know, thought that they were awesome and everyone else was beneath them. Everyone else was lower. Than, than them. And Jesus has no time whatsoever for this kind of worldview, for this kind of, of heart posture. So he tells them this parable to kind of illustrate the problem with their way of thinking. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. So, so that was kind of the, the overview of who the Pharisees were, how their movement came up and, and kind of who they who they were, uh, it's, it's worth, you know, kind of putting ourselves in the shoes of the people that were listening and kind of uh, understanding who the people, how the people viewed the Pharisees, how the Pharisees would have been viewed there, right? Because the Pharisees, uh, you know, in their day, to the people around them were, the reason why they kind of walked with a swagger and thought that they were better than everyone else is because everyone else thought that they were better than them. Everyone looked up to the Pharisees. Everyone thought these guys are the personification of, of righteousness. They are the, they're, they're rich. They're well-educated. They, they wear fancy clothes. I mean, I want to be, uh, everyone wants to be like the Pharisees. Everyone wants to be able to hang around the Pharisees. When Paul in Philippians 3 is kind of talking about uh, the glory of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and, and the supremacy of Jesus over and against his own spiritual accomplishments, he's kind of giving a, an outline of his resume, as it were, and he says, I, Paul, I was circumcised on the, on the eighth day. I was the, of the people of Israel. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And with regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. Paul, like, Paul says, like, if you, want to, if you want to know how high up the food chain I was, how awesome I was, how uh, much I should have and would have been justified in, you know, trusting in myself, I was a Pharisee. And the, the reader of, of Philippians would, you know, would respond by, hey, like, say no more. Like, game, set, match. If you're a Pharisee, you are the top rung of the ladder. There's no one that is, is higher than you. That's how the Pharisees saw themselves, and that is how everyone else saw the Pharisees. So Jesus uses this character deliberately. He's choosing the highest, most elevated, most impressed, most celebrated person that he could conceive of. That's the first guy. And the second guy is a tax collector, which is a stark contrast, right? If the Pharisee is the, the highest rung on the ladder, you can't conceive of anyone better. The tax collector is the lowest rung on the ladder. It's similar to, you know, similar to the story of the Good Samaritan where you've got, um, you know, you've, you've got uh, priests and Levites kind of representing the highest rung of the ladder and then Samaritans representing the lowest rung. You've got a Pharisee as the highest rung and a tax collector as the lowest rung. Tax collectors were 
despised. I mean, on par with, I mean, Samaritans were hated, Gentiles were hated or were kind of, you know, disenfranchised, but they were, they were outside of the people of God, right? So, so we've got the people who are within the nation of Israel, the people of God, and we all see ourselves as higher. We see ourselves as God's chosen people, and then there's those other people out there. Tax collectors were like, they, they were especially despised because they came from within the people of, of God, but they also, you know, betrayed the people of God and sided with the, the enemy, right? The, the, the nation of Israel, I mean, with, with few exceptions, like in the time of David and Solomon, I mean, for, for the vast majority of their history, they were an oppressed people group. They were an occupied people group, right? From, from slavery in Egypt, uh, you know, on through to Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and now Rome. Just one country, one nation after another was constantly kind of harassing and, and, and defeating and enslaving and kind of uh, oppressing the nation of, of Israel. And Rome was kind of the worst to that point, right? Worse than all the ones that came before them. Rome uh, was this ever, Rome was like the Borg in, in uh, Star Trek, right? That like just this constantly growing and assimilating and ever, you know, any life form that like they see, they, I don't even know how they do it, but like they, you become a Borg somehow. They, they stab you or whatever. The, uh, that was, Rome was just this ever expanding, ever, and Caesar right in the middle of it was getting richer and richer and richer. And it was like this, you know, pyramid scheme where they would come to a new civilization and just kind of, annex them like you are a part of us now and it was kind of you know kind of a carrot and a stick right like the carrot is you know we you have the full uh force of the roman army the roman empire is now behind you you're a part of the roman empire right we're not going to let anyone overrun you uh and but but in exchange for that the, the stick is you know uh we want everything that you have we want all of the gold and all the treasures out of your, the temple of your gods and out of the palace of your king. We want, you know, a, a significant percentage of your income and your resources and your assets. Like, we just want all of that, all of those things so that we can fund our army to keep going further and take over more and more cultures and more and more civilizations and to send uh, the vast majority of it back to Caesar, who can become richer and richer and richer and just have hundreds and hundreds of billions of, of dollars worth of, uh, you know, just resources. And, and if, you, if you don't do it, then we'll just kill you. Like, if you don't do it, we, we will kill you, dominate you, enslave. The, the, I mean, Jesus died on the cross. The, 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 the crucifixion, the, the execution strategy of crucifixion was a Roman strategy that they would use to kind of make an example of people that if they would come into a, a group and say, we want you to be part of Rome. We want all of your money. We'll protect you. But you're essentially kind of working for us now. If anyone said, no, we're good, we would rather be you know, all, all, we'd rather kind of stand on our own than they would start crucifying people. Like the movie Spartacus, right? Like they'd have like entire like roads, people being, being crucified um, to say like, this is what happens when you don't comply. This is what happens when you don't, you know, kind of go with our way of, of doing things. And one of the ways that they would extract those resources and extract that those, those assets and that money from this newly kind of acquired people was through tax collectors who were often locals, right? Indigenous peoples that are like there in the group. They would just kind of find 
uh, some, maybe some of the less patriotic people uh, in, in the group, some of the people who were more likely to turn, who were, you know, could be bought, as it were. And they'd say, would you rather, instead of having all of your money taken, would you rather participate in taking money from all of your fellow countrymen and you get a good chunk of it and you give us uh, the, the vast majority of it? And they would find these kind of, you know, these people who would be willing to turn on their own countrymen in order to, like, aid and abet Rome in their systematic exploitation and kind of uh, extortion of these kind of newly acquired uh, people groups. So everyone hated tax collectors because tax collectors were turncoats. They were traitors. They were, they were thieves. They were stealing your money, and they were, using, they were kind of giving your money to the enemy, to the, the terrorist occupying your, uh, your place, your village, your town, your, your country. Everyone revered the Pharisees. They were the most impressive people that there could possibly be. Everyone hated tax collectors. They were the most despised people that there could be. So Jesus sets up this contrast on purpose. The Pharisee and the tax collector walking into the same temple. The Pharisee stands by himself. And here's what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector. I mean, all of which are like... Praise God that you're not a, a, an ex, praise God you're not an extortioner, or that you're not unjust, or that you are not committing adultery, or that you are not you know robbing your fellow countrymen and kind of siding with this like you know with the the the, uh, the Roman uh, oppressive regime. Like praise God that you're that you're righteous and not unrighteous. But again, right? I thank you that I am not. Like, I, I thank you for how good I am. I thank you for my accomplishments. I thank you for the fact that I don't commit all of these sins. He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his righteousness. And he's treating others with contempt. Right? He's in the, he's in the temple. The temple which is designed specifically for, like, the whole point of this building, the reason why it's here, so that you can come and give glory to God, ascribe honor and praise and value to God. You can think about and talk about and exclaim how great God is. You can, for a second, get your eyes off of yourself and direct them to God and worship God instead of keeping your eyes and your attention on yourself and worshiping yourself. This guy comes in and his eyes are on himself and his eyes are on, right, he's going through the Rolodex in his mind, right? My, my neighbor is having an affair. He's bad. I'm good. My other neighbor is, you know, stealing office supplies. He's bad. I, I, I'm good. This tax collector right over here, he's the worst of them all. He's bad. I'm, I'm good. And all of this self-righteousness, you know, has has the it has the veneer of spirituality it has the veneer of kind of religious you know he doesn't say uh i am not like other men extortioners unjust adorers he says god i thank you that i am not like so he's he's kind of like attaching the worship of god gratitude gratefulness to be directed to god but he's linking it he's attaching it to his own to who he is and to his accomplishments, and to his, uh, his resume, his, his works, right? Religious self-righteousness kind of has this, like, sneaky, deceitful way of, of masquerading as real righteousness 
right? Masquer- it's, it's love of self masquerading as love of God. It's, it's you know, uh, being self-obsessed and trusting in myself and, and caring only about myself, but then kind of presenting to, to myself and to everyone around me that I actually love God and I actually trust in in God. So I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I am righteous. I, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've never done anything that anyone could accuse me of doing, of wrongdoing. Right? This Pharisee has the outward appearance of, of godliness, but, but he, is, he is the quintessence. He is the, the epitome of self centeredness, you know, selfishness, being self-absorbed, self-obsessed, right? He is all entirely, his religion is, is selfism instead, instead of anything, anything else. And the, the reality is that, that God has called his people to certain behavioral standards, which include all of these things, right? Don't commit extortion. Don't be unjust. Don't commit adultery. Don't do the things that this tax collector does. God, God calls his people to practice the spiritual disciplines of tithing and, and you, know, uh, you know, fasting, right? God, God calls his people to behavioral standards, but, but even more than that, even deeper than that, even kind of more fundamental than that, God calls his people to love him and to treasure him and to prize him and to prioritize him above themselves. So the prospect of, you know, conforming to this external behavioral standard of extortion and justice and adultery and these things, while at the same time loving yourself more than you love God, is, is, is counterintuitive. In fact, it's kind of ridiculous and it kind of is... Uh, it, there's there's no there's no real deep true value value in it right uh, sin and rebellion right this this Pharisee walks into the temple thinking sin and rebellion looks like that it looks like adulterers it looks like injustice it looks like extortion it looks like people who don't fast and don't tithe it looks like that tax collector sin and rebellion often does look like that it often does look like just uh, overtly breaking God's rules and God's laws, but sometimes sin and rebellion takes the form of religious self-righteousness, where you do everything right, you fast and you tithe and you do everything so that people will respect me, people will think highly of me, people will approve of me, God himself will accept me, right? All right, I'm going to do all of these righteous things so that I can kind of make God accept me, right? I'm, I'm either afraid that God won't accept me or I uh, don't think that God will accept me uh, if I don't have this perfectly pristine, you know, polished resume. And so I don't love God. I don't trust God. I don't love God more than I love myself, but I'm going to, I'm going to you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to be as righteous as I can be so that, I, so that I can kind of earn my own salvation. You can rebel against God through self-indulgence, or you can rebel against God through self-righteousness. You can rebel against God through irreligion, or you can rebel against God through religion. 
And so, so Jesus says, here's this Pharisee who has completely missed the mark, right? He's trusting in himself, trusting in his righteousness, and treating others with contempt. And here is the tax collector in verse 13. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right, so the Pharisee marches right in, front and center, right to the middle of the, of the temple, the middle of the room. Everyone is staring at him. He wants them to stare at him. He's kind of basking in the glow of his own glory, and the tax collector can barely get in the, in the room, right? He can barely get his shoulders inside the, the doorway, and his back is against the wall, and he doesn't even feel worthy of being in the room at all, right? The Pharisee is standing there, inviting everyone to behold him. The tax collector won't even look like he's, his eyes are facing down at the ground. He's ashamed of himself. He's ashamed of his actions. He's ashamed of his character. He's ashamed of what he has become. In all likelihood, it's probably been just a, a slow kind of sin has probably, you know, infiltrated this tax collector's life in the same way that it infiltrates anyone's life. Slowly, little by little, small compromise followed by small compromise compromise, followed by small compromise, until he looks at his life and he's made shipwreck of it, and he's embarrassed and he's ashamed, and he wishes he could take it all back, but at this point he's far too, he's, he's dug in deep, and he's, you know, he's in Caesar's pocket, and there's nothing he can do, and he, he beats his breast, which is a cultural symbol of grief and mourning and contrition and, and, and sadness, It's a cultural symbol that means that you're convicted by your own sin. Uh, When Jesus dies on the cross in Luke 23, uh, the the soldier who crucified him realizes that he is uh, innocent, realizes that he was the son of God. He says, you know, I think we just crucified an innocent man and he's kind of grief stricken. And everyone there that was watching Jesus uh, be crucified is grief stricken. And it says that they mourn and they beat their breasts and they go they go to their respective homes. This tax collector looks at his life and has a similar, he has a similar feeling, a similar uh, anxiety in his soul that, that, that people, uh, you know, he feels similar in his soul to, to how an angry mob would feel when they murder an innocent man. And then as soon as he's dead, they realize it. And they're just grief-stricken. And they're, they're filled with anxiety. And they're filled with conviction of sin. That's how, like, the same, same uh, Greek words are used to describe this tax collector that are used to describe the people that murdered Jesus and then felt bad about it after they were done. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? Not... Uh, I am great, I am awesome, here's all the things that I have done. No, it's, it's God, I, I need your mercy, I need your grace, I need your unmerited favor. Lord, I, I don't want you to treat me as I deserve to be treated. I need you to treat me better than I deserve to be treated. I'm, I'm needy, I'm broken, I am hopelessly bound in sin. I, I have broken your law inwardly, and outwardly, I've rebelled against you in, in word and thought and deed, in, in action and motivation. I, I have no, 
uh, you know, no spiritual resources in and of myself. I have no right to demand anything from you because I have not lived a life that is worthy of making demands. You are far above me and I am far beneath you and I have no right to demand anything of you and yet, Lord, I am asking. I'm asking you to have mercy on me. I know that I'm not as righteous as you have called me to be. I know that I'm not as righteous as this man to my, to my right, this Pharisee. I know that if I'm left to my own devices, I will be separated from you forever. And so, uh, you know, without, without denying or without kind of uh, dismissing my own unrighteousness, I'm asking for mercy. Pharisee, has a heart of pride and self-righteousness, and the tax collector has a posture of brokenness and vulnerability and, and transparent acknowledgement of his own guilt. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Which is... Absolutely shocking, right? Up until this point, you know, imagine, you know, like the uh, story of the prodigal son, right? Where the, the younger son goes off and wastes all of his dad's money and the older son stays there. And, and then the younger son finds himself just completely depleted and no resources and no, nothing. And he's in a foreign country and he's eating pig slop. And, and everything up until that point of the story seems about right. Right. To, the, to, the, to the person listening to it for the first time. He got what he does. Like the, the older brother's at home, obeying his father. He's getting what he deserves. The younger brother is gone, and he is completely uh, you know, at, the, at the bottom of, of a ditch. He has nothing, and he's getting what he deserves. And there's nothing shocking about that story until he comes back and receives grace. Right? There's nothing shocking about this story until Jesus says that it's the tax collector and not the Pharisee who is justified by God. You'd expect the Pharisee to be justified. You, like, there's nothing shocking about the Pharisee's behavior when he walks in and says, I thank you that I'm not... He's not like other men. He's not bad. He's not uh, an, an adulterer. He's not unjust. He, right, he is uh, you know, basking in his own glory, and, and at first glance, that seems appropriate because he is pretty impressive. And this tax collector is ashamed of himself, and he's kind of cowering in the corner, and he doesn't want anyone to see him. And that seems appropriate because he's bad as well. This is so, what's so shocking is not their respective behavior based on their lives and who they are. What's so shocking is that Jesus says that the tax collector is the one who is justified, and the Pharisee is not. Right? There's a righteous man who sets the standard for how a person should believe, should believe and behave in the nation of Israel, who we all assume that he possesses God's highest standard of, of approval. And then there's a wicked man who's abandoned his friends and abandoned his community, and he sold them out for money. And we would expect the Pharisee to be justified and the tax collector to be condemned, and God says that's not how justification works. Right? People aren't justified on the basis of who they are and what they do. They're, they're justified on the basis of who they trust. One of the elders wrote this. Jesus describes this relationship and both of these characters is intentionally 
meant to be shocking. God considers pride to be an abomination, and yet we uh, take it lightly. We, we look at it trivially. Every football spike or end zone dance is an abomination to God. Every long-winded prayer that we use to show off our theological knowledge or every Facebook or Twitter post that we use to advertise how good we are is pride. Pride's normal in our culture, and humility is abnormal. But then God's acceptance of the tax collector is all the more amazing. It almost seems unfair, right? A nice, just, religious guy is not justified because of his inflated view of himself, and a guy who's lived a life of sin gets justified because he's honest and admits his need. But that is the gospel. All of us are in as great a need as this tax collector is. Even the Pharisees among us are in need like this tax collector. The question is not whether we are righteous or unrighteous. The question is whether we will realize our true state and whether we're prepared to count our righteousness as nothing and throw ourselves entirely on God's mercy. The gospel is so amazing Because believing it makes you want to be more righteous while at the same time freeing you from the fear that you will never be righteous enough. So Jesus says, this man, this tax collector, will be just declared right. Justified means to be declared righteous, right? If you're you're accused of a crime, you're called into court, and you, you bring an alibi and you say, I couldn't have been where the crime was committed because my, I was over here. My cell, phone thing, my cell phone location says I wasn't even, even there. They say, all right, he's got a, an airtight alibi. He's not guilty. This man is justified in the eyes of the law. He's declared righteous. And the key question that the Bible is, is looking to answer from start to finish is how can a sinful person be justified in the eyes of a holy God? How can a sinner be justified in the eyes of a God who cannot look on sin? How can we be justified? And these two characters represent two fundamentally different answers to that question of how we can be justified. Are we justified on the basis of our merit, right? Who we are, what we do, how good of a person we are, or are we justified on the basis of who Jesus is and our trusting in him? Or the, the tax collector recognizes that his, like, the, the ship has sailed long ago. The ship of him being justified on the basis of his life and his morality and his works. And so he says, rather than appeal to myself and my accomplishments and my personality, I'm going to appeal to God and to God's mercy. This is a, a move of desperation, right? But, Hail Mary, right? Like, that's, Hail Mary in football, like the last ditch effort, throwing the ball at the end of the game is kind of, I mean, it comes from, you know, you throw the ball and you say your prayer, say Hail Mary and hope that you win the game. But this is a last ditch ever, right? Like, I have no other, right, I've exhausted every possible thing that I could do to be justified, and I've, I've come up wanting in every single category. My only hope now is to trust in God. And Jesus says, This man, I'm not denying that he's despicable, but as despicable as he is, as unworthy and undeserving as he is, this man is justified by God. The Pharisee, despite how righteous he is, goes home unjustified. 
when left to ourselves, right, we, we tend to assume that we can, that the way, to, uh, the way to justification is to accomplish it and to earn it. And God is saying that's, the, uh, right, the, the way to justification is not to be a part of the good people as opposed to the bad people. The way to justification is to be a part of the humble people as opposed to the proud people. The people who recognize that they are not good enough. Regardless of whether you're good or bad, the determining factor is whether you recognize that you are not good enough. And God is saying, right, God, in this parable, God is saying, you, you are more than welcome to come before me on the basis of your works, on the basis of your merit. I'm not going to stop you from doing that, but let me go ahead and, and just let you know beforehand, no one who does that will be justified. No one who comes before me on the basis of their righteousness and their merit will be, will be justified. You can't be spiritual enough. You cannot be righteous enough. Pharisee, tax collector. Mother Teresa, Adolf Hitler. You, like, none of, like, you cannot be righteous enough. You cannot be godly enough to merit my salvation. All of humanity is together in the same boat. So you can come before me on the basis of your works, but no one will be justified. But the good news of the gospel is that just like there's no one who can be, no one can be good enough that they can merit their salvation on their own, no one can be wicked enough, no one can be sinful enough that they have kind of rendered themselves, they've landed themselves outside of the reach of God's grace. Pharisees are not righteous enough to merit God's salvation, and tax collectors are not so sinful that God is unable or unwilling to save them. Pharisees, tax collectors, uh, Mother Teresa, Adolf Hitler, right? No one is righteous enough to merit God's salvation. No one is wicked enough that God is unable to save them. And so, so our, our question that we have to ask ourselves looking at this text this morning is where, like, what is the weight of our salvation resting on? Where is it, where is it leaning? Is it on ourselves or is it on Christ? If it's on ourselves, we will never be justified no matter how good we are. And if it's on Christ, then our justification is sure and secure for all of eternity. So God is inviting us this morning to look inward, and not not to look inward and say, am I righteous or unrighteous? He's inviting us to look inward and say, am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in Jesus to save me? Those who trust in Christ will go home justified, and those who trust in themselves will never be justified. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right, so the the one that, that swaggers into the, the presence of God, expecting to be commended, expecting to be celebrated, right? Uh, who exalts himself before his fellow man and, and wants everyone to acknowledge how great he is, that person will be humbled. That person will stand before their maker, and God himself will require them to give an account for how they lived their life, and they won't have a word to say. The one who humbles himself, the one who's despised and rejected, the one who's overlooked and forgotten, the one who stands far off and, and uh, can't even lift his eyes toward God. And he's convicted by his sin and he's broken and he cries out to God for mercy that he does not deserve. That person will be exalted. Meaning that they, 
too will stand before their creator, and they will also be required to give an account for how they live their life, and they will also be silent. They will also not have a word to say, but before they even get a chance to speak, Jesus himself will will rush to their side. Jesus himself will embrace them and and lift their, their chin, and Jesus will turn to his Father and say, He is with me. I want you to treat him as you would treat me. I want you to welcome him as you would welcome me. The humble will be exalted and they will experience the joy and the loving presence of Christ forever. The man who trusts in himself will be treated on the basis of his works and he will be condemned. The man who trusts in Christ will be treated on the basis of God's mercy and he will go home justified. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as you see us, as broken sinners who uh, desperately need your grace. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would uh, help us Uh, to to, uh, respond to you like this tax collector responds, by crying out to have mercy because we are sinners, because we, uh, you know, have a profound need. Help us to look to you. Help us to enjoy the grace that you freely offer. Lord, we love you and we trust you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.